Heavenly Father, it is with a sense of trepidation that we open up your word this morning. For your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are so far above us. And yet, Lord, we come seeking to understand. We have genuine questions, and Lord, we ask that you would grant understanding. We, have, uh, we wonder how you work. But Lord, we pray that you would grant us knowledge so that we might know your ways and your thoughts. But Lord, where that still seems to be a gap, we, Lord, we pray that you would draw us closer to you through faith that our trust in you would stand more firm, that you would be digging in us a deep well uh, of trust in you so that we might know you, walk with you by faith. And God, we pray that you would be drawing us today to yourself that we might know you and trust you. Be with me now. Pray that my words would be clear, that I wouldn't add anything that is not here in the scripture and that I would not take away anything that is here either. Grant us understanding and love for you in Jesus' name. Amen. My grandfather worked for the Ohio Department of Transportation for his whole career. He was a general laborer on a team of several men uh, that he served with for uh, most of his time. Well, over the course of, I'm not sure if it was several months or several years, he began studying to be a surveyor. And upon passing his surveyor's exam, he was then moved to another team. Well, the week that he was moved, whether it was a day before or a couple of days before, we're not quite sure, but the week that he was moved, his his former um, co-workers were out on a job. As they began to put away their tools, they were all in the van at the same time. A trucker came around a turn. He bent over to light a cigarette. When he looked up, he had plowed over that van. All three were killed. My grandfather came home that afternoon. His in-laws there, his wife, to inform him of what had happened to his friends. Why would one be saved and others killed? Why would my, my grandfather be spared, yet not his friends? In our current series called Called to the Gospel, we're wrestling through some very challenging chapters in Scripture. As Pastor Mike mentioned last week, it would be tempting to skip these over. But here at Grace, we believe the entire Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. So we must read it, we must seek to understand it, and we must proclaim its truth, regardless as to how comfortable it makes us. To review a little from last week, Pastor Mike clarified for us in the first 13 verses of chapter 9 of Romans about the identity and the selection of God's people. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, one will be provided for you by one of our host teams. You can find that in the Bible provided for you. That's on page 917, 917 in the Bible provided. One author suggests that the primary theme in this passage is God's faithfulness to his promises. The question that we wrestle with in these chapters is how could God remain faithful to his promises despite the number of Jewish people who had rejected Jesus as Messiah, the one who would deliver them? Paul answers that question in Romans 9 verse 6, which is likely the theme verse of these uh, three chapters and of our series. Paul writes in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel 
belong to Israel. Paul then gives examples of two families. First, Abraham, who had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. It was Isaac, not Ishmael, who was the son of the promise. Even clearer, Isaac had two sons, twins for that matter, Jacob and Esau. Verse 11 onward clarifies God's sovereign selection over those two brothers. Verse 11 reads, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. God is remaining faithful to his promise because the promise was never that every descendant of Abraham or every Jew ever born would be saved, only a remnant. Through his purpose of election, that is God's calling by his own good pleasure and sovereign will, he was making those who were not his children truly his children. He would call some but not all. God's election is said to be unconditional, which is the very essence of verse 11. They had not been born. They had done nothing good nor bad. It was in nothing good or bad seen in them in which God chose them for life and the other for death. It was all conditioned on God's grace. God, Jacob was not necessarily smarter, more handsome, or more behaved. It was simply on God's grace and God's grace alone. Not all Israel is true Israel. The point from last week is this, that God's children are descendants of his promise to Abraham, not those of Abraham's flesh. In other words, the true children of God are those who come to him by his initiative through faith. Faith alone is what marks us as children of God. It has nothing to do with our works. It has nothing to do with our efforts. It has nothing to do with who our daddy is. It's all by faith, and it's all of God. There's a spiritual Israel within natural Israel. It is God's sovereignty and selection that is the ultimate deciding factor in one's spiritual response. Doug Moo says for us, one commentator, salvation is never a birthright, even for Jews, but always a gift of God's electing love. It's not a birthright for those of you who have grown up in church. It's not a birthright because your dad was a pastor. It's not a birthright because of good works done by someone else. It is but a gift. Now, this introduces a whole host of questions. I have many of my, my own. This is a complicated issue and it requires discernment and humility. Now, Paul could have said all these things and moved right from verse 13 to verse 24 and begin to show how God's purpose of election works not only in individual Jews, but also in individual Gentiles as well. However, he stops for a moment and he anticipates some objections or questions about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Paul does this like a good attorney seeking to patiently and persuasively prove his point. I've asked Lucas Cohen, one of our interns, to read for us Romans 9, our passage today, Romans 9, verses 14 through 29. This is from the English Standard Version, so we'll read a little different than the NIV, which has been 
provided. But if you would please stand and honor the word of God as Lucas reads for us from Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it says to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thanks, you may be seated. In our passage today, Paul states two questions or objections to his sovereignty and salvation. He provides an answer, then an illustration, and then some explanation. You see that pattern in both of, those, both of these questions. And then in verse 24, he gets back to his central point about his mercy toward both Jews and Gentiles. In this text, we see the godness of God, the manness of man, and finally, the glory and purpose of sovereignty. If you're following along your worship program, you'll see at the main point at the top, you can fill in some blanks. Our main point today that I seek to prove from this passage is that our salvation is accomplished through the mercy and for the glory of God alone, not by our effort. Our salvation is accomplished through the mercy and for the glory of God alone, not by our effort. I encourage you to hang tight with me today. There's a lot of scripture that I seek to uh, to use, and uh, Paul provides for us as an illustration. He'll be going back and forth. Hang with me right there in Romans 9. Trust me in what I'm reading from other passages, and you can look those up later or email me if you want the cross-references. But first, the objection about the godness of God. The question is, natural in our own hearts, is to say this. Is God unjust because he saves some 
and not all? Is God unjust because he saves some and not all? This is a common question um, that many regarding uh, God's election of particular people. This introduces the issue of fairness and equality. How could God be just or even more literal here is, is he unrighteous for not calling all? How is that fair? This is an accusation from the quiver of the human mind aimed at the heart of the character of God. Justice is a big deal. We long for justice, especially when we are the ones who have been wronged. And if we're wronged by God, then of all means, he should not be trusted. Psalm 119 tells us that his testimony is righteous forever. So if if God is unjust, how could we trust him? Paul answers this with a simple reply to the objection, is God unjust? He simply says, by no means. He then goes into an illustration from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Moses was in the tabernacle speaking to the Lord. He, he asked the Lord to show him his way so that he may know him. And in verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. And God responded, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. After this statement in verse 20, God says, but you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. At stake in the question of of injustice of God is the godness of God. Is God really God enough? Central to his character is his authority to bestow mercy on whomever he chooses. God's righteousness is not measured by our standard of fairness but by his own sovereign will and pleasure. Paul follows this then in verse 16 with an explanation. He says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is a well of mercy and he showers his people in his own plan and providence. It has nothing to do with our achievement. Remember, we are saved for, by the mercy and for the glory of God, not by our effort. The word here, exertion in the ESV, or as the NIV uh, translates this as human desire or effort, the literal translation here would be to run, to run. In the marathon of salvation, the crown is not given to those who achieve by our own merit, but by God who runs the race for us. It is not by our running, but on God who has mercy. See, without God's sovereignty in salvation, we undermine salvation by grace alone. Imagine God bringing us through a marathon, 26.2 miles, and we get to 26.1.9999 miles, and he says, it's up to you to reach the finish line. No. God crosses us to the finish line by his own good grace and mercy. See, what about you? Do you see salvation as something you must merit on your own, through your own good works, through your own religious attainment, through your own plan? Is life merely a series of obstacles and races for you to achieve before God will finally accept you? Are you tired of performance? How could your sneakers hold you up in that race? 
the race of sin and captivity. You can't, unrun, you can't outrun that, but God can. In the 1500s, Martin Luther was under much criticism because he preached that nothing could merit one to salvation, not prayers or rosaries or psalms or good works. He wrote this, my doctrine is this, that people should not trust in anything else than in Jesus Christ alone, not in prayers, merit, or one's own good works, because we are saved not by our running, but on God who is merciful, but through God who is merciful. In highlighting the mercy of God, Paul quotes another passage from Exodus, so readers might see the purpose of his call this time. Exodus 9, 16 is the passage. Moses goes before Pharaoh, and uh, God says to tell him this, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul closes his first objection in Romans 9, verse 18, by saying, so then, He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, the issue of Pharaoh's hardening introduces introduces some challenges. See, in the Exodus story, we see both that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But some have suggested that God only hardened Pharaoh because Pharaoh first hardened himself. Now, I'll admit that sounds appealing. However, it's just not true. We find no verse in Exodus that tells us that Pharaoh was hardened only because of his own hardening. One commentator writes that the hardening Paul portrays here is then the sovereign act of God that is not caused by anything in those individuals who are hardened. Some of the passages that don't get mentioned in that discussion are ones like Exodus 4.21, which is mentioned in a predictive manner of Pharaoh's hardening. Exodus 4.21 says... The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Why would God do this? Why? Verse 17 of Romans 9 tells us, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Since God is God through his mysterious providence and plan and his sovereignty in both mercy and hardening, it is for his fame and for his glory. Think as well of the effect that this had on the people as the Israelites came out of Egypt. Remember back to our Joshua series. The spies came, bef- uh, came to Rahab, and what did Rahab say to them? She said, we, have, we know that God is with you because we've heard about the Red Sea. We heard how those waters split, fellas. We heard how the, uh, the Egyptians came in afterwards to get you, and the waters all of a sudden went back. We've heard about that. We know that God is with you. The fame and the glory of God's name was already going forward among the people. We may not understand exactly why he has mercy on some and not all. We were not going to pretend to answer that question. That's a mystery. But in humility, we must trust that the sovereign God of the universe is right and good in his choice of mercy and his choice of hardening. 
To be clear, we need to understand the reality of mankind. The Bible teaches that all mankind, every human being is sinful and in rebellion against God. It's not as if we start this life on some level playing field plateau where God chooses some for good and some for bad. We are all in this avalanche downward deserving condemnation and judgment because of our sin. God is not unjust to only save some and not all because he is merciful to merely save some and not send all of us to judgment. Doug Moo writes, God's hardening is an act directed against human beings who are already in rebellion against God's righteous rule. Those who are saved are saved purely by the mercy of God. Those who are hardened are simply given over to their sin and therefore the right consequence due. So God's action is not unjust, it's merciful. All that he does is righteous, and because he is God in his godness, he can do as he pleases, even when it doesn't make sense to us. This, however, introduces another objection. The second objection relates to the manness of man. The question is, if God saves some and not all, well then why are we held accountable? Why are we held accountable? This is verse 19. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Okay, Paul, fine. God has mercy on whomever he has mercy. He hardens whomever he he hardens. Then how can anyone be guilty? How can man be at all responsible if God is totally sovereign? I'm fine with a little sovereignty, Paul. I like a God who can answer my prayers or who can provide for me. I, I like a God who creates the earth out of nothing and sustains life in and of himself. I like that. But how dare you, Paul, Tell me that I'm held accountable for something that I don't have ultimate control over. At one level, this is a legitimate question. How is God totally sovereign and man held responsible? These two truths exist for us side by side in the Bible. And we must accept it. God is sovereign, man is responsible. J.I. Packer, in his short, wonderful book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, order that this afternoon. He says this, man is a responsible moral agent, though he is divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he is a responsible moral agent. God's sovereignty is a reality, and man's responsibility is a reality too. The Bible tells us we must respond in belief and faith in what Christ has done on our behalf. And the Bible tells us that God is ultimately in control over that response of faith and belief. Both these truths are taught in the Bible. And while it seems like a contradiction to us, it's not a contradiction to God. We see these two truths side by side, even in the very gospel of Christ, his death on the cross. Acts 2, 22 through 23, we see sovereignty and responsibility. Peter is preaching and he preaches this. Men of Israel, hear the words Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through you or did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Who's responsible for the death of Christ on the cross? God and man. 
In Romans 9, though, Paul doesn't go into any explanation of this antinomy, this, this existence of two seemingly incompatible truths that really aren't. Packer says he rebukes the spirit of the question. Paul responds in verse 20 to remind us of the madness of man. Paul says, where are you, O man? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In other words, as one writer summarizes, how can finite, frail, and weak human beings venture to dictate to God how the world should be run? Who do you think you are? Paul moves into his illustration. He says, well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? A sculptor has complete authority over what he is making. Imagine Michelangelo uh, crafting his famous statue of David, and he's uh, gently and precisely carving out the intricacies of his face, and all of a sudden that block of marble says, excuse me, Mike, uh, could you make my hair go the other way? Some of you guys in here are woodworkers. I grew up woodworking in my, my grandfather's shop. There's nothing like the smell of a piece of walnut going through a table saw. You have a plan and providence in your own sovereign will. That piece of lumber really is this piece that goes to that grandfather clock or that wonderful desk. One of those pieces will be made for glory. The other piece is nothing but kindling. Brothers and sisters, why do we so often think that we are the center of the universe? When Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God, what he is doing is boldly reminding us that God is God, we are humans, and we are as far apart from him as the Atlantic separates us now from Europe and Africa. God is holy, righteous, and perfect. He dwells in unapproachable light. He gives breath and life to everything. The very life, the dust particles in this room are sustained by the authority of his word. But in our selfie generation of 93 million selfies a day, do we have time to look at the glory of God and not ourselves? In our infatuation with ourself, can we see that God has a purpose we may not understand? That we are creatures, not the creator. Paul's response here in Romans 9 is similar to God's response to Job in Job 38. God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. In Isaiah chapter 6, we actually see this picture of the vast difference between us and God and the right response when mankind is confronted with the glory and the awesomeness that is God. Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice. 
of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. In the reality of our human existence, we as sinful human beings deserve to be cast off because of our rebellion against God. We have no right to tell God what He should do. Paul explains in verse 22, when God executes His wrath against sin, it shows His power and makes known the riches of His glory. The vessels of mercy that are prepared before Him for glory as they see the wrath that comes on those who are prepared for destruction, it can't help us but see the glory of God. Who writes God's ultimate purpose in His decree of hardening is mercy. As those who have trusted in God alone and Christ alone by faith, we see what is coming on those who haven't. And it should humble us to make us glory that He saw fit to save us. To see the King should have meant death for the one. But now through Christ, we are told to see and behold and savor him so that the one who looks at Christ through faith might be saved. God is sovereign. No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. God bestows mercy on whomever he chooses, yet mankind is sinful and responsible for their actions. And the judgment comes to, the, to deserving sinners. God is God. Man is man. So what's the point? How do we come up from the sea of God's mercy to to breathe a little bit? How can we live in trust and faith and obedience in light of what he's called us to? Well, verses 24 through 29, Paul brings us back to his original point. This is the issue of identity in the people of God. We finally see the glory and the purpose of sovereignty. God's glory is at the center of his sovereign saving purposes. Verse 23 clarifies that God saves and hardens in order to make known the riches of his glory. He then moves to verse 24 saying that this is not true just for the Jews, but the Gentiles also. Quotes from Hosea 2, which says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in that very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Paul quotes then from Isaiah to explain how a remnant of Israel will be saved. And he finishes by saying, if the Lord of hosts had not left his offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Paul is saying that if it was necessary that true Israel can only be saved through the sovereign call of God, then of course it's necessary that only Gentiles can be saved through the sovereign call of God, not by human effort. It is by grace alone. Those who are far off would now be called sons of the living God. Ephesians 1 and 2 make this plain. Paul writes in Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the earth, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God's purpose in saving us on the basis of his offspring, Jesus, is to make those who are far off, those who are enemies, those who are in rebellion, sons, friends. In love, he predestined us. Adoption really is the perfect picture. Many of you in here have adopted. Some of you in here are adopted children. Adopted children are adopted by the will and the purpose of another. It is on the initiative of the adoptive parent that a child who is not theirs becomes theirs. They are secure, not because of anything that that child did, either good or bad. They are secure because of the will and the good purpose and the love in which that adoptive parent made them their own. And for Jews and Gentiles, this is our story as well. It is through mercy that God made us His to the praise of His glory. This has been the story throughout the whole span of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says to Israel, it's not because you were more numerous that I chose you, it was because I loved you. Ezekiel 36, he says, it's not because for your sake, but for my sake, for my name, that I put a new spirit in you, that I vindicate my holiness, that I come and get you for the glory and for the praise of Christ, he calls us. See, this is not some, sovereignty is not some arbitrary, distant, you know, God in the lounge chair, not caring about those whom he called. No, sovereignty has love at the center of it. It's in his passion for his people that he calls them. It's out of the relationship that he longs for with his people that he secures them, that he calls us out of sin. Chapter two of Ephesians says that we are dead in our trespasses and by nature children of wrath. But verse four, it says, but God being rich in mercy with the great love in which he has loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive. For by grace you are saved. We're laying dead on the table. No life in us. No heartbeat. CPR won't do it. But as God, as Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, and he said, Lazarus, come out. He says to us, and he speaks breath into our lungs, and he calls us to by grace. These are complicated issues. I joked earlier this week that part one of the sermon would be the first service and part two of the sermon would be the second service. Don't worry, you're getting the whole package. These are complicated, but I'm not satisfied by telling people this doesn't matter. I believe God's sovereignty and salvation is central to the message of Scripture. And there are some wonderful practical benefits of sovereignty. Let me name just a few. The first is God's sovereignty and salvation protects salvation by grace and not works. Jonathan Edwards said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. God makes us alive through the power of the Spirit. It's not how fast we are. It's not our running. It's not our merit. It's not our effort. Secondly, God's sovereignty and salvation is the basis for our assurance. 
We do not save ourselves, therefore we do not keep ourselves, but God does. Jesus did not die for the possibility of calling some people. He died to secure salvation for those whom he had chosen. We can be secure because it's all of grace. Thirdly, God's sovereignty salvation is for the praise of his name and glory. Let me ask, who are you going to tell this week of the wonderful work that God has done in you? Sovereignty does not shut us up. It opens us up to tell the good news because we know God is working in people to draw them to himself. In a couple weeks, as we get into Romans chapter 10, we'll start to see why it's necessary that we must tell people about the gospel, how they can be reconciled to that holy, righteous God through the good work of his son, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And those who respond to him by faith and repentance are granted new life forever. Finally, God's sovereignty and salvation should lead us to praise not paralyzation. Lead us to praise, not paralyzation. We don't understand all this. I don't understand all this. I see it in scripture. Therefore, I believe it. And while I can't understand, it makes me all the more humble. It makes me all the more worshipful of a God who would see fit to call those who deserve death. Toy Story 4 is out in theaters. I know you're going to close this uh, sermon on the sovereignty of God with a story about Toy Story, I know. Okay, I haven't seen Toy Story 4, so I have no spoilers to give, but recently my family and I were watching Toy Story 1 in our home. Throughout the movie, Buzz Lightyear thinks he's an actual space ranger, and Woody tries to convince him otherwise throughout the course of the film. Eventually, Buzz sees a, uh, a commercial with Buzz Lightyear dolls on the uh, um, being for sale, and he realizes finally that he's just a toy. He says to Woody, I'm just a toy, a stupid, little, insignificant toy. He's dejected, depressed, distraught. If he is but a toy, then what was his value? Woody looks back at him, though, and says, look, over there in that house is a kid who thinks you're the greatest. Not because you're a space ranger, but because you're a toy. You're his toy. Buzz eventually looks down at his shoe. When underneath his shoe, the name Andy is written. Upon seeing not just what Buzz is, but whose Buzz is, he gets a grin on his face. He becomes confident. He realizes his purpose, not in what he is, but whose he is. Bear with me a moment. You might struggle understanding how God is sovereign and you're responsible. I sure do. You might find this complicated. I sure do. You might wonder, what's the value of my choices? What about my freedom? What about my decisions? See. Can we, we, can we just trust God for a moment to know that he has all of that in his control? He has all of that figured out in his plan? Can we recognize that our names, for those of us who have trusted Christ by faith, that our names 
or his name rather, is written on our hearts. That he's called us by his own good grace, by his mercy and love that he has changed us. That in our salvation, we can thank him as an adoptive child thanks their adoptive parents for giving them new life, for raising them from the dead. Don't allow this to paralyze you. Allow this to provoke you to praise. Because our salvation is accomplished through the mercy and for the glory of God alone. Not our effort, not our effort. It's by his initiative to save. And our response is praise. Heavenly Father, we come to you as people with unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. You alone are sovereign. The very fact that you allow us the privilege and grant us the opportunity to come before you is but by your grace. God, fill us, if not with understanding, with trust, with a steadfast, bold trust, knowing that you will not do anything that doesn't glorify yourself. We don't know how exactly this works, but we know, we know that you are higher than us and we trust in you now. Fill us with praise. Fill us with proclamation to, so, so that others may know of this wonderful work, this wonderful God in which you are. In Jesus' name, amen.